1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Aliyah Khan, and we're going to be talking about her new book, Far from Mecca, Globalizing the Muslim Caribbean, published this year by Rutgers University Press. The book takes a long view of the presence of Islam in the Caribbean, from the 15th century encounter to the present, but it does so through a series of very precise analyses of texts and historical moments. Her interdisciplinary approach draws from literature, music, and biography, and offers new ways to think about religion, certainly, but also about slavery, gender, and belonging in Guyana and Trinidad. I really enjoyed talking to her, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, Aaliyah. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Thank you for having me on here, Alejandra. Um, So I'm going to start with... um, a, a usual, the usual question about how did you come to write this book, but it seems to me that uh, your path was a little bit unusual. I noticed in your um, acknowledgments that you mentioned that this is your first book, but it's not one that was based on your dissertation. So um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led you to this book.
0: Well, there are a whole, thank you for asking that question, there are a whole confluence of reasons. Um, I should say that the first one is probably because I am a member of the community that I write about here, meaning that I am a Caribbean Muslim. Um, I was born in Guyana before immig- and spent my childhood there before immigrating to the U.S., um, to Queens. Um, but, you know, it's having grown up in the milieu, but you're also right that in academic terms, it is not my dissertation, which is a little unusual for a first book. Um, it's not that my dissertation was unrelated because my dissertation was on Indo Caribbean literature, and the Indo Caribbean community is partially the subject of this book. But um, this book on Islam and Muslims in the Caribbean fills what I perceive to be a huge gap. It is what I, I, I essentially ended up writing the book I wanted to read. <laughs> On um, the community that I wanted to read about, um, you know, as, as you may know, there is work um, out there on this field of Islam in the Caribbean, but it tends to be not in my field of literary studies, but in anthropology, in history, and, you know, to some extent in recently in security studies. But there was no monograph um, or really extended analysis on literature, on what you could call a body of literature by Muslims and about Muslims in the Anglophone Caribbean. And, you know, I really want to specify that this text um, really, it it essentially just addresses the production of work um, by Muslims in the Anglophone Caribbean and not so much the Hispanophone Caribbean or the Lucophone Caribbean, which are also areas that are kind of ripe for study. Um, but, you know, to kind of summarize the answer to your question there, it's that, yes, certainly this, this, this book incorporates um, some aspects of my dissertation in terms of the analysis of Indo-Caribbean community identity formation. But it is the book that I felt that there was a sort of s- social and political need for in the present contemporary post 9-11 moment that we are in.
1: Yeah, and I guess related to that. Um, it seemed to me that one of the things that the book does, and you're right about there being not very much, not very much by way of what your book does out there. Um, one of the things that the book does is kind of create and share an archive
0: mm-hmm. of
1: writing, music, um, of talking about Caribbean Muslims. Um, there's an interview at the end, a couple of interviews at the end, and so I was wondering actually which, which for you came first, the idea for the book or the archive.
0: That's an interesting question, and I don't think anybody has posed it to me quite that way before. Um, you know, what what actually came first is the politics, um, because mm-hmm. I grew up. With the knowledge of, you know, one of the people that I interviewed for this book, Abu Bakr, who is the leader of the Jamaat al-Muslimin that perpetrated a coup, a governmental coup in Trinidad in 1990. Um, You know, like I grew up with the knowledge of that happening and the adults around me talking about it. Um, But I never learned anything about where that might fit into, you know, any kind of conceptualization of Caribbean history or, or definitely any kind of, you know, narrative about Islam in the Caribbean, you know, it seemed to be this kind of one-off incident um, that nonetheless posed Muslims as this kind of, you know, outside, th- th- this kind of... Um this kind of you know fifth column internal threat that was us, but then somehow related to the outside. So yeah, so the politics came first. Um and you know, thinking about that in connection with 9-11 and the after effects of, of 9-11, hearing um, you know, some US governmental statements in the last couple of years about Caribbean nationals uh joining the Islamic State. So I wanted to, you know, I was thinking about the connections between you know these these politicized Muslim events that I knew about growing up and and then the discourse around Muslims in the Americas now. I wanted to make some of those connections in that book.
1: And and in fact, the way that you make that connection, which I found really fascinating, is to take a very broad historical perspective, right? And the the first argument that you make, and one of the, the important ones, is that Muslims came to the Caribbean in a variety of ways. And over a long period of time, and so I'm wondering um, if you can talk a little bit about why it was important to you to go to go back um, before, I, mean, I guess, to the encounter, right? To yeah. to b- before even before enslaved people came as as um, as part of the story.
0: Yeah. So, I mean there there are a couple there are a couple of reasons why I think it's important to trace historiographically trace the entire trajectory of Muslims in the Americas. It's essentially to establish the idea that to, to establish the idea that Muslims aren't just, you know, um, recent immigrants to the Caribbean or, or the the result of like a kind of recent migration of both ideas and um, people to Latin America and the Caribbean. And I'm, and I'm purposely including Latin America there, too, um, but that they have always they have been there since the moment of, you know, since they've been there since 1492, you know, some of the old. Oh, um, to speak metonymically, some of the earliest voyages of the, of Spaniard and, um, Portuguese colonialism to the New World included Muslims on board. Um, so, you know, it, it's that, it's to trace the entirety of the history of Muslims in the Americas to suggest that they are not, they're not simply recent. And also that there are, you know, populations of Muslims that are, that are homegrown. You know, they're not, um, they are not converts or reverts or they have just been there for as long, certainly as the Caribbean has been colonized and then, you know, as 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 it as it has been post post-colonized. In our contemporary moment, I think it's really, really important to note that uh to to to, to kind of foreground the history of African Muslims in the Americas, because I think it is something, especially in the Anglophone Caribbean, that is elided in favor of the history of indentured Indian Muslims in the Caribbean. There's a longstanding, you know, kind of convention, there's is long-standing conventional thought in places like Guyana, um, Trinidad and Jamaica that have a sub, you know, substantial population of people of Indian descent um, from the period of indentureship of the late, in the late 19th and 20th century to think of Islam as an Indian religion. Um, and as related to you know, as a religion that is just proper to people who have who are descended from you know people who came from the Indian subcontinent, and that is just simply it's simply not true. Um, you know, at least like it's definitively not true, especially since we have you know texts that were written. Um, you know, the first chapter of the book discusses these two autobiographical texts that were written by enslaved Africans in Jamaica in the um, in the nineteenth early nineteenth century. So, you know, it, it, the, the whole the whole point is simply to establish the fact that, you know, Muslims have always, or not always, but they have, there have certainly um, been a part of the colonial history of the Americas ever since there was a colonial history of the Americas.
1: Yeah, I, wa- I want to get back to that um, issue just a little bit later when we sort of walk through the book. But um, before we really dive into the arguments, I wanted to just note um, with a little bit of a, um, I don't know, I, I I loved what you did. It seemed that part of what you were doing was expressing, sort of writing back, writing this book as a kind of expression of dissatisfaction, slight dissatisfaction with um, Walcott and Naipaul. Um And, um, you know, the two kind of giants. <laughs> um, and I I just, I really appreciated the way you said, yeah, maybe, but, you know, let's think about this too. And so I I wonder if you, if, if that is that, is that correct reading on my part?
0: You know, sure. Let's say, (laughs) you know, let's say yes, um, because I'm always invested in trying to get us out of any of these established binary positions, um, such as, you know, you have to, when you're thinking about the the future of the post-colonial mimic, it has to be, you have to take a positionality that's more, uh, you know, aligned with Walcott or that's more aligned with Naipaul or, you know, whichever other, whichever other, um, you know, Binary, you might you might want to think of. Um, essentially, I wanted I wanted to get us out of um, the positionality where the, the the kind of chronic Caribbean positionality of always being of always having to take um, a definitive position in terms of, you know, these really common tropes of mimicry, hybridity, creolization. Um Because the Muslim in the Caribbean, and indeed, I think a lot of religiosity in the Caribbean does not neatly fit into the category of like, you know, it's not a a neat Creole iteration or a neat hybrid iteration or something that you can point to as, you know, Naipaul's mimic man. You know, it is because of the relationship, the ongoing relationship that Muslims in the Caribbean have with this global Islamic community, the Ummah. Um, it is a it is a figure that is kind of sort of always in flux, always in formation um, in with with relation to the global. And, you know, there are other plenty of other Caribbean scholars that make the same arguments about things like, um, you know, the way that Santeria, Wudun and so on, are practiced in relation to practices in the African continent, how much back and forth there is. So I would say I think I'd like to just sort of get us out of like, religious conceptualizations of like static realization static hybridity and the kind of doomed mimic man that is always going to be repeating these same patterns over and over into the future
1: yeah and i think that you you sort of you do that throughout and um you know the way that you just even when you sort of introduce this idea okay let's talk about enslaved people and let's talk about you know how many Muslims there were who were who were there, and the the their you know the literacy and um, the ways that they kind of change everything that we think about slavery in the British Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, ha, tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us about you know how how should we now incorporate um, what you're finding about um, the presence of Muslims in among enslaved people in the caribbean how should we now talk about slavery in in the british west indies um that is a i mean what what a huge topic right
0: like <laughs> i mean there there are so many there there, in, there are countless approaches that you could take you could take to this but um you know one one way that i can one way that i might approach this right is in thinking about there not being in fact a homogenous figure of the enslaved african in the caribbean There isn't. Right. I mean, like we are used to perhaps thinking, uh, you know, as influenced by movies, as influenced by media, TV shows and so on. You know, we are maybe used to thinking of the enslaved African as someone who, you know, um, occupies both both visually and, um, you know, in in labor terms and in terms of what they do and what they're capable of. A very particular positionality that includes a lack of access to literacy. Um, uh and, and you know anything else, right? Like people who are somehow plucked without history from the continent of Africa and then laid down in in the Americas and all and their entire experience as human beings has to do with their experience of labor and suffering. So um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to part of what I'm attempting to do here is recreate or, or you know bring to light the person. Um, these are people. Um, who had lives and histories and so on in the continent of Africa in the case of the two people that I mentioned in um, who wrote their own autobiographies in Jamaica, you know, um, from from West Africa specifically. One one was a person from Cote d'Ivoire. You know, you can you can through through knowing their entire names and patronymics, you can tell where they're from, who their families were, what their um, religious um and familial lineages were like, you know, these are fully, this is a way to kind of fully fleshed out who the human beings that we are talking about are. Um, yeah, and also put a point to the fact that there's not a singularity. Of people who were enslaved from the African continent, um, religiously either, uh, because we are again, you know, we're, we we maybe some of us know of like Vodun and all of these myriad other West African religious practices, the Yoruba, and then also Central African from Congo that were, um, you know, ended up being ended up being incorporated into these Catholic syncretic religions, um, or these religions syncretized with Catholicism in the New World. But that is not all there is. Um, I'm invested in, you know, kind of, you know, bring into light the plurality of history and people's experiences, the experiences and lives of the enslaved in the Americas.
1: And then at the same time, you um, you go, I mean, the the big historical sweep is there, but you also sort of zoom in on the literary and the poetic and Um, You spent some time talking about the Sufi strain, which which you find in many of the writings. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because I found that um, so, so fascinating as a way to think about the writing that you're dealing with. yeah,
0: You know, I did not understand, even though I had grown up as a Muslim in the Caribbean myself, I did not understand the influence and the impact that Sufism had on African, the, the, on the, on the, um, Islam of enslaved Africans in the, in the Americas. I should have, you know, I, should have been able to, you know, extrapolate about that given where they were from in West Africa, you know, like these regions of, um, what is now Nigeria, Ghana, um, Khodovar Mali, in particular, you know, um, I should have been able to extract that because these are the seats of the great Sufi brotherhoods of West Africa that still continue that, you know, are, are flowering even today, even when Sufism is maybe um, somewhat in decline or disfavor in other parts of the world. Um, I, I should have. Yeah. But but it's only really when I read um You know, I read these texts that these men had written, these enslaved men had written themselves, that I really understood that their Islam and to a large extent the Islam of, the literate Islam of West Africans who were enslaved in the Americas, it really was a Sufi Islam because that is their training. Like that's their religious training and that they are members of these, there and their families are generational members of these Sufi brotherhoods that still exist in West Africa. Um, it is a Sufi lineage and is a specifically African Sufi, uh, Sufi lineage. Um, and I had to you know, I, I grew up in a more traditional, um, with more traditional Sunni Islam in um, in Guyana. And I had to learn myself about, you know, Sufi, Sufism. I have a Sufi teacher now. Um, and, you know, he really helped me understand um, some of the references in these texts from the 19th century. Uh, there is one in particular, uh, the autobiography Um, which scholars call the Kitab al-Salat, the book on praying by this man, uh, Muhammad Kaba Sakunugu, who was enslaved in Jamaica. And um, in the early 19th century, he wrote his text around 1820. It's like partly autobiography and partly, um, you know, uh, partly autobiography, partly manifesto and partly just uh, teachings that he remembered from his own schooling, his own Islamic schooling. In, um in 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 West Africa the first time I read this man's autobiography where he talked about both his life and you know the fact that he was um he his life and then the fact that, and, and his conditions now I cried the first, which is like you know kind of a it's an interesting reaction for a scholar um I guess you, you you could kind of say um you know when you find these things in the archive and they really you know from like across the um from across like two centuries, you know, I was, I was so moved by reading this, this autobiography of this enslaved man with references that I understood from my own upbringing, um, that, you know, it was, it was very, it was a very emotional experience. Um, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where I was going with that, but you know, like it's a, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly, um, a personal work and, you know, it, um, It made me think seriously about um, how we as scholars interpolate ourselves into a work because, you know, I had to think about, am I more sympathetic to this person because he is literate like myself and highly educated like the scholars who are reading his work are? Um, Am I more sympathetic to his suffering because he is a Muslim, um, because he is a person of color? And so am I. Um, So I I think it it engaged me as a scholar on every single level that you can think of, right? Um, Personal
1: academic uh
0: yeah
1: yeah and it, it strikes me that maybe what's wrong with it, uh, um, the way or what you thought was perhaps problematic let me just put it this way is that we weren't we're not supposed to respond emotionally to the people that we find in the archives and the things that we see there right the idea is that we're just supposed to respond in this kind of academic you know, analytical way and suddenly we're confronted with these people that we recognize and that's, that, you know, yeah. it seems only human that we would respond to them that way, but somehow we've been trained not to, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, but I think, you know, in Caribbeans, in our shared field of Caribbean studies and too in general in, in Latin American studies and African diaspora studies, you know, I don't want to generalize and say like ethnic studies, um, or regional or area studies, there is a little bit more room for some of there is a little bit more room for some of that, particularly if you have taken the position of identify, identifying self identifying as a member of the community that you're writing about, which is certainly not um, a position you have to take, but. Um, I think in, in recent years, I have seen a lot of scholars do things that are partially, uh, Caribbean scholars, I mean, do things that are kind of like partially ethnography, partially, there's a lot of interdisciplinary work now, right? That is sort of partially ethnography, a little bit of autobiography, um, definitely history. Um, I'm thinking, you know, of, of some of the, some of the bigger names in African diaspora studies, even like Saidiya Hartman, you know, who, um, like say her first her first book is is certainly historiography in the most in the more traditional sense, um, but then there's this move toward um, you know what she calls critical fabulation and something that um, th- these, these these historiographies that nonetheless um, are about that are nonetheless personal because it is personal. Many of us are writing about things in which we are deeply and emotionally invested, and I think it's fine to acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very kind of salutary turn, to be honest, yeah. um, in in what we do, and and also my students really respond to to things that I give them to read what, that are written that way. So, yeah. you know, there's an audience out there, and actually, it relates to to a question that I had about women, mm-hmm. um, and um, you 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 talk about incorporating women, um, and you point out that of course they're very difficult to find in the archives, but you you know you look. You find them anyway, and you find them everywhere. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how how you went about doing that. Um,
0: You know, I really, thanks for that question. You know, I really wanted to find an autobiography that was written by an enslaved African woman in the Americas, but I could not. You know, Um, there are a bunch of them, um, you know, in Jamaica, Trinidad. And of course, there are these accounts from Brazil and even and the United States. None of them are written by women. It's not that women, it's not that women were not educated in the madrasas of West Africa. Some of them were. um, But it is they just, you know, none of them left these kinds of these kinds of texts. So instead, I have, you know, what you what you might have noticed here is, the archive for women is the literature. You know, um, Sylvia Winter says that, you know, Caribbean history is, is something, is, is a kind of formulation where the narrative moves from fiction to fact. Um, and I don't want to say that that is exactly what happens in the literature of Muslim women in the Caribbean, but the literature helps fill some of those gaps in the archive where, you know, so there you can find, so you can find it there. You can also find it, too, in legal documents. Um, too, that, you know, deal with what Muslim women, what what they're wearing, um, what their inter, what their, what their um, marital relationships, there's always this domestic stuff, right? Like what their marital relationships are like, um, what laws govern their marital relationships, uh, that kind of stuff. So it's like a, co- it's, 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 you know, at times when I was doing this kind of research, I was like, all right, I'm cobbling together this history out of like this hodgepodge of, um, from, like it for for women right like I'm calling it together out of this like a hodgepodge of sources it's like legal cases it's literature it's um there's you know it, it it's just like various people's like own history like personal histories um it's interviews uh but I think that's how it has to happen right in like this kind of interdisciplinary work there's no there's no like um straightforward archival way of of doing it of finding women in these archives
1: but also you know in a way that connects to something that you said about the way um, women's narratives are different from some of men, men's narratives. And um, I was really fascinated by this idea that the distinctive, distinctive, distinctiveness, excuse me, of women's narratives are kind of rooted in crossing and they're more attentive to ancestors. Whereas the, the, the men's narratives are more often sort of about exile and they're yes. kind of par- portioned off off unto themselves and women are always kind of directly connecting back and going back and forth. And maybe it's, it's uh, also a reflection of the kinds of sources that are available, which are always kind of connected and fragmentary and, and sort of reaching across.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is totally true. I mean, we're all familiar of the, of, you know, with this with, in our field, with this trope of like the Caribbean, the exiled author, right. Of whom like Naipaul is this huge example. Um, but women's narratives, yes, you're right, it, they do tend to be a little bit kind of different uh, different in, in terms of traversing boundaries, because fundamentally, right, they are always about this, this constant negotiating of um, the boundary between the domestic sphere and, and the domestic public sphere, uh, sorry, the domestic private sphere um, and the public sphere. So there is always this kind of, it begins with this kind of back and forth. Yes, Um, I was I was saying that um, there is always like women's narratives always traverse the boundaries between the domestic private sphere and public sphere, right? It is always about this kind of ongoing negotiation about what's proper to domestic and what's proper to private. So in some senses, that is extended to the national um, in ways that are maybe a, a little bit different in the, from the writings of people, people like Naipaul and so on. Um, women tend to, or at least these narratives that are by and about women, tend to engage simultaneously with what happens in the domestic sphere and the national and global stages at the same, at the same time. And they're never really about like these single protagonists. Um, I'm making huge generalizations here. Um, but n- not about like these these singular protagonists that are like thinly veiled representations of the author himself, like going off into like a foreign country and just being the suffering exile. They're almost they're almost always about family and how um, people negotiate th- those kinds of transitions as community groups.
1: Yeah, um, and I guess connected to that a little bit um, is. Um, the way that you talk about the work of Wilson Harris. And I have to thank you for talking about the work of Wilson Harris and helping me to make some sense of him, because I find him um, just kind of fascinating, but also very puzzling a lot of times. And this idea of marvelous realism. Um, And as you use it as a way to talk or actually kind of not talk about identity. And I noticed that you you move away from the notion of identity in a way that I, I found very productive. Um so I, I, I wonder if you can help us think through this idea of marvelous realism and how it connects to the way you're thinking about identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I want to say something about Wilson Harris, which is that you know, everyone finds Wilson Harris a little a little puzzling, you know, like we like his his writing is his writing is very is is very. It is magical, you know, and it is kind of very it is very dense um, and and like kind of wading through his his thought processes is always a very kind of engaging intellectual project, but also a project that is deeply about the national and attempting to kind of um, attempting to, to kind of conceptualize of what nationhood means in the Guyanese context specifically and in, in the Caribbean context um, a little bit more broadly. I mean, you might, okay, and then you might have noticed, of course, that throughout this te- text, I'm kind of wedded to Alejo Carpentier's not, not notion of marvelous realism, um, and, and particularly the idea, not magical, right, but like marvelous specifically, um, and particularly the idea that the marvelous real has to proceed from a kind of faith. Um, which I'm taking to mean in this text um, the, the 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 idea of faith as like a whole a whole bunch of different things, but fundamentally, faith as something that can create reality itself. Like that is where that is where I'm borrowing from Carpentier, right? That faith that a kind of faith, and I don't just mean um, faith as in religious faith, but also faith um, in the possibility of your continued survival in this kind in these like you know, horrific colonial circumstances of enslavement and indentureship and so on. Um, you know, like if that is something you have faith in um, and, you know, and, and that, that kind of dovetails with re- religious faith, that is what will happen. You will survive. That's Carpentier's ma- marvelous realism for me.
1: Yeah. Um, in a shift from literature to a um, more historical sort of register, you talk about the coup in Trinidad mm-hmm. um, and this interview with this historical figure um, Mamiassin yeah. Um and then also in the same chapter, the importance of sartorial choices and also about music. <laughs> yeah, so, that is a long um, chapter. Yes. Um, but, but you wrap but, but those all up together for us because you do it beautifully in the chapter. <laughs>
0: All right. Um, okay. So part, I think, okay, one, one, one kind of framing, framing, um, framing way to think about this coup in the Caribbean is that, um, you know, I want to, or at least the Anglophone Caribbean, is I want to establish this coup as the lens through which people in the Caribbean think of Islam. You know, like 9-11 is not our event. Um, nor is it like the Gulf War or even anything earlier. It really is this coup um, in 1990 when Abu Bakr and the Jamaat al-Muslimin seized the, the, seat of, the seat of Trinidadian government, the Red House, and a couple of other public, um, uh, public buildings and art organizations for a couple of days. Um, that is the first time, I, you know, that people in the Anglophone Caribbean were, you know, that's the first time they even thought about Muslims as a group as such that lived in the Caribbean. So I, I think any any discourse around Muslims and Islam in the Caribbean is necessarily any Anglophone Caribbean is necessarily filtered through this history of the Jamaat al muslimin coup in Trinidad. So that's that's kind of um that's kind of thing one. Um about about women and women's uh, women's dress is that, you know, for better or worse, the way that Muslim women dress is always a is always a signifier of Muslims anywhere you go in the world. And their exact permit, the exact permutation of how they they dress, um, you know, means something, um, co- you know, continues to mean something even more Um it is how people identify the presence of Muslims in a community. Um, they'll they'll look for if like there's some woman there covering her head, and then to what exa- to to what extent she covers her head. Um, in the Trinidadian context, the way that women dress. Has also changed. Um, And um, in in the Caribbean context in general, the way that women dress has also changed, as I discuss in that chapter. It goes kind of back and forth from this kind of um, Indian inspired shalwar kameez dress, um, which is what you could expect Indian Muslims to wear, you know, anytime from the time that they started coming in the 19th century to, you know, the 80s and so on, to more Arab inspired. to more Arab-inspired, both head coverings and general and, and, and general dress styles. You could also tell something about the Muslims' um, own allegiances by the fact that by the fact that the way their women have dressed dress is has actually kind of shifted in the opposite direction from the general um, Trinidadian societal trend from Indian to a more Arab thing. They've shifted from more Arab-type dress, which you know signifies to some people a certain type of conservatism. To a more Indianish way of dressing that symbolizes a more kind of Trinidadianness. so there's this these kinds of engagements with what it means to be like a creolized member of um Trinidadian society that um I think that um the 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 Muslimian group um and like what they have done like you know kind of lays bare
1: and then also, what about calypso <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: The third, the third element. Um, okay, so m- music is this kind of really fraught area um, when you're talking about Muslim, um, Muslims and Islam and so on because Muslims have very varying, widely varying opinions of and also theological rulings on what is musically permissible in Islam. Um, part of the argument I make here in this book is that, um, you know, despite some of the stricter um, theological, juridical, um, uh, interpretations of what that should be, um, of what the role of Mus- what the role of music in Islam or the place of music in Islam should be, is that the religion itself is full of these instances of what you could call music, right? Like taj- like there are all these like international competitions that are um, international um, Quranic recitation competitions um, and elocutionary competitions called like Tajweed. Um, like there are there, everybody has some kind of variant. Of like of of Islamic chants, um, the big the big uh, difference tends to be whether or not they believe it is permission permissible to use instruments or just um, do vocal renderings. Um, there is no clear prohibition against music in the Quran. It's uh, there's a but there is a there is there is one um, saying of the Prophet, one hadith that people usually use when they invoke. Um, that when they say things like Muslims aren't supposed to listen to music, it's about the dangers of idle talk rather than about um, music itself. So, but in the Trinidadian context, what becomes immediately clear and in the Caribbean context is what becomes immediately clear is just as much as music suffuses the entire Caribbean experience everywhere. um, That is true of um, Trinidadian Islam and Caribbean Islam in general as well. And you will not, you know, um, Abu Bakr, the leader of, um, the Jamaat al Muslimin, one thing he did when he took over Trinidad's radio station, national radio station during the coup is he played calypsos. Like he's a calypso king himself and he's very proud as he told me of like still being in calypsos now. So that is a really particular Caribbean manifestation of it. It's really just, it's not maybe quite so overt elsewhere. Um, but like the role of music in, um, Caribbean Islam and just the kind of embeddedness of music in Caribbean Islam is maybe a little different from elsewhere in the world.
1: Yeah, it seems like what you're aiming for is this argument that you make sort of in different ways throughout the book about the kind of particularity of Caribbean Islam and the way um, that sort of thinking about creolization is just not adequate to understanding um uh Islam in the Caribbean
0: mm-hmm. um i'm sorry did you did did I interrupt you
1: no, not at all <laughs> I thought that was continuing um,
0: yes, it is both particular and it is it is both particular and not, you know, in the sense that it's true that Caribbean Muslims are creolized in some of the same ways as their brethren of any other religion or no religion at, of, at all is in, in cultural terms. Um, you know, you'll find like a lot of Caribbean Muslims in, in places like Guyana Trinidad, they'll totally celebrate Easter, Christmas, with like every single manifestation of those things except the actual going to church. Um so, but but people don't see that as in that kind of cultural participation as in contradiction with their as contradicting their religious beliefs in Islam and their participate their their particular religious beliefs in Islam um, so in, in in that sense it is um, a very discrete particular kind of Islam that exists um, alongside of the alongside um, of all of these other, of all these other traditions in what is definitely a kind of Christianized post-colonial society. Um, It is both particular and, and, you know, creolized in some ways.
1: And I wonder if that's the reason that you ended with 9-11, because that kind of broadens out the perspective from the Caribbean, but also you can make the broader claim that thinking about this false choice between Islam and the West is really um, not the way that we should be thinking about it at all.
0: Yeah. I mean, as, as, as I hope is, 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 is really clear there. The question for me is, and the question that I think should be, should the question for me is never um, Muslim, like Muslims or the West, you know, as, as like Edward Said could have told us, right. It's not, it's not, it's never just a question of East or West and you can't have one without the other. Um I just, you know, I'm really resistant to the idea that 9-11 needs to be this form, is the formative moment for the conceptualization of all of, all Muslims and Islam in the United States because, and in the Americas because it just elides this entire history of Muslims in the Americas. Um, and it, it continues to, um make the position of the United States, it it, it, it continues to, you know, centralize, it con- it continues to, what's the, what's the word? I'm I, I'd like to decenter the place of the United States in the study of Islam in the Americas. And if we continue to focus on 9-11 as, as this kind of seminal moment for which there is like a before and an after in terms of the ways that we think about Muslim history in the Americas, it does a real disservice to the fact that um, number one, Muslims have been in the Americas for far longer than you know the general public uh, the American general public thinks. and then um, number two, the history of Muslims in places like Brazil um, and and also other places uh, and then these other places in the Caribbean is just as important as the history of Muslims in the United States in thinking about the ways that Islam, Entered, entered the Americas in this colonial way
1: yeah I think that that's a really important thing for us to all remember um, I'm wondering actually as a, as a kind of wrap up question we've, I've taken up a lot of your time um, have you presented this material in Guyana or in um, Trinidad I'm super curious to see how yeah. people are are taking it in I have a sad answer to that question. It was that I was
0: supposed to, but it was canceled because of COVID-19. So the book just came out uh, in April of, actually, it it started shipping in March of 2020, but technically speaking, it just came out in April of 2020. Um, So I had a book launch lined up in Guyana. This summer, so that was going to be that was essentially going to be my first stop um, uh, at a book launch in Guyana, and unfortunately, that was canceled. Uh, but I, you know, I really look forward. You know, it was going to be this really interesting moment of here I am returning to the returning to the homeland with my book (laughs) as an, as an academic. Right. Um, uh, I, have had, I have presented, I, I should say though, that I have presented some of this material already, um, at a conference last year, the West Indian literature conference that was hosted by the university of Guyana last year, um, we met, we, we all managed to go before, you know, any, any other world disaster hit. And I gave a talk that was kind of a summation of one of the chapters of this book um, at the University of Guyana. And I think it was really well received. Uh, what was, intre- you know, um, I think what was the most interesting for people in Guyana, particularly given its own fraught r- racial, r- racialized history of conflict between, you um, India, between people of Indian descent and people of African descent in Guyana for, you know, it's about, you know, the populations of those two groups are about equal, um, was to hear, it was important for those people to hear that there has also been a longstanding presence of, of African Islam in the Americas. So, you know, that did seem to have some kind of impact. Um, it was also interesting for people to hear about this history of this um, Shia festival Husayn That was, um, you know, this really important moment of creolization in Caribbean Islam in the 19th century and the 20th century, but that was banned by um, in both Trinidad, outlawed by in both Trinidad and and, and Guyana by the British colonial authorities. And there was this whole massacre of people celebrating it in Trinidad called the Muhara massacre by British soldiers. It was yeah, so it was important for people to hear about that. And then thirdly, my grandfather, who is an imam in Guyana, came to my talk. So that was an interesting moment, <laughs> um, you know, that whole again that confluence of like the personal and um, you know the academic work.
1: Wow. Well, I really hope you get a chance to present it uh, again or to present more of it in in throughout the Caribbean. It's it's fascinating work. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on the podcast.
1: A pleasure.